We've reached the last Sunday in our study of the book of Ruth, and it only took six weeks. So maybe next week we'll begin a 75-week series in another book. <laughs> so since it only took six weeks to do this one. So we'll, uh, actually, April and I were talking about this this morning because I've, I've been looking through some of the old um, files. I keep all the files um, from all the books that we've studied together and preached together. And I told her this morning that I'm pretty sure that since the inception of this church back when we first moved here, because we, when, we, when we first came, we, I mean, we've, been, we've been a lot of different places, in homes, in homes primarily or only, and then moved together in, in, a, in a large group, and then we've kind of ebbed and flowed depending on you know, the way God led us. But I, I've kept all of the teaching series on, on uh, files, and I think we have done, we have preached, so I know that not all of you have heard these because we've had different folks come and go throughout the years, but for me and for my parents, you guys have been here since the beginning in April, and Ben's been here a long time, Kenny's been, been and then back, and then um, you guys have been here since pretty much the beginning, right? The Caldwells have been. You've, you've heard, I think, us preach through every book in the New Testament except for Maybe First and Second Peter. I don't think we've gone through that. Maybe First and Second Thessalonians. There's only there's only a couple books, but I but I've done messages from those from those books. But in terms of starting at the beginning, chapter one, verse one, and going through, we've hit a lot of books in the New Testament, and actually several in the Old Testament as well. And um, we want to be true to to preaching through the entire um, the, the, the entire Word of God. But there have been some books that we've done three or four times. Like I think we've done John three or you know like three times at least. Uh, we did, we did uh, maybe, uh, I don't know. Anyway, we'll figure out where we're going to go next week. So, so we spent a good three years in Romans. Yes, yes, we did. So yeah, there's a hundred and some weeks in that, in that, uh, in that book. So it deserved it. Oh yeah, every, every bit of a year in John. So that's three years of study if we've done that three times. So yeah, it's, uh, we'll see. If, again, we'll, uh, I'm praying about it. I actually, I actually thought about first, uh, first Peter. So I'm going to look at, I'm going to take a look at first Peter this week and, and see if that's where God wants us to go. So anyway, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll, and we'll begin. God, we thank you so much for the study that we've been in today. And whether it's someone's you know, sixth week here in the study of Ruth, and they've heard all, all five messages leading up to this point, or if it's their first week, I pray that you would tell us again the story and how it points us um, to Jesus and what it was that you were doing. I pray that we would see, Lord, that you are absolutely in control of everything, all events, all circumstances, and we would know that, and we would, we would have that confidence to see that, um, the reason why you gave us the book of Ruth, this story in the Old Testament. So it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what we're going to do today is this. I actually don't have any chapter and verse to read today, but we're going to read, we're going to think about the whole story again together. I just want to go back and take a few minutes to just look at all of the ways that this story, this wonderful little what looks like a love story, this short story, points us to Jesus Christ. Because we, we believe that and we know that to be true. One of the things that you've heard me say a lot here at Oasis, and you know, whether it be here or online or whatever, is I... We believe that, that everything, every, every book in the Bible, every story, everything from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, all the way to the end in the book of Revelation, we believe that it is all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. That we can look and see, whether it be a foreshadowing of Jesus, an actual prophecy of pointing to Jesus, an actual somebody who's, who's being a type, like doing something that Jesus would come and later do even better, whether Jesus actually appears in the Old Testament, it's all we see, you all always see Jesus. And so whenever you read the Bible, look for Jesus. And so what I want to do today is I just want to very specifically 
say, how do we see Jesus in the book of Ruth? How do we see the gospel, the good news of the grace of Jesus? If you remember, the main theme that we, t- that we tended to talk about a lot was this issue of God's providence, that God is always at work, even in what may seem like the most mundane and you know, inconsequential circumstances of life. But what God wants to teach us in books like, the, like Ruth, in stories like Ruth, is that for his people, for the Christian, God's desire is to connect us always to something that is far greater than ourselves. God wants us to know that when we follow him, our lives always have a lot more meaning than we think they do. For the Christian, there is always something bigger going on. There is always some greater purpose that God is doing in your circumstance. It is always that way. And the reason why we know that is true is because Paul tells us in the New Testament, in the book of Romans chapter 8, that God is working out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so if you are someone that claims to love God and you really do want to try to organize your life to his purpose, then what you need to understand is that regardless of what's happening in your life, God is working his purpose in that. Even though it may not seem like it, it may not feel like it, and it certainly didn't seem like it or feel like it for Naomi and Ruth and these people that we read about and studied about. But everything that we do in obedience to God Okay, I should say that. Everything that we do in obedience to God, no matter how big or how small, is extremely significant because in God's providence, he is working with that to bring about his will in your life or perhaps in somebody else's life. In God's cosmic tapestry, I look at that back there, that thing on the wall, that big quilt, I I picture God just weaving together a beautiful picture that we may not always be able to see, but he can see it, and he knows where he's going with it, and his purpose is to display the goodness of his grace and his power and his wisdom throughout the world, and that's what we see in stories like the book of Ruth. The deep satisfaction of the Christian life is knowing that our life is not a life of trivialities. That, it's not, that nothing is trivial. That things like serving a widowed mother-in-law, right? That we saw Ruth do. Gle- going out and gleaning in a field because you're hungry and you want to go and try to find a way to get some food. Meeting a fella and falling in love with him or meeting a gal and falling in love with her. Having a baby. For the Christian, everything, all of these things may seem like just everyday things. But they're all connected to something eternal, and they were in this story. They're part of something much bigger than they seem on surface level. And so although the book of Ruth was really small, it's just a little four-chapter chapter book, it carries a, a very distinct and powerful message for us to live by, and that is this whisper of, of, of who God is and this pointing us to who Jesus is going to be as he comes 1,200 years, some 1,200 years later in the book of Matthew as we, record, as, we, as we read about the coming of Christ. So in this book, let's think through the four characters and how they foreshadow the gospel. We had four main characters in this book, and I'm just going to go right through all four of them. And I believe that they foreshadow the gospel in a very profound way, in four profound ways, actually. And it gives us sort of a framework and understanding for 
the gospel, I think, in a, in a new perspective. That's one, of the th- that's one of the reasons why it's good to study and do sermon series on Old Testament books because they are all pointing us in some way to Jesus. And you're able to get a different perspective on the gospel if you look at these stories like the story of Ruth. And that's one of the reasons why we chose this. And so let's, let's begin with Naomi. I'm actually just gonna keep my Bible open to the book of Ruth so I can glance down at a couple of verses, but I really don't have anything for us to read. So... I hate that. I always want to, let's, I tell you what, let's do something. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he sent his wife, who is Naomi, and his two sons, and they went down. There we go. All right, we always have to read scripture because that's where the faith comes from, right? But we're telling the whole story of this scripture. So we got Naomi. Naomi was an Israelite, which means that she was part of the the family of God, the tribe that God had created to eventually send the Messiah through, okay? So these were God's people, which means God gave them instructions about who he was, about his character. He gave them instructions about how to live, how they would live separately from the rest of the people in the world, who at that time, it was a very, very sinful and fallen world. And God said, I'm gonna keep you holy. I'm gonna keep you separate and holy because you can follow these laws. And he gave them the Old Testament law of Moses for them to live by. And so Naomi was part of that family. In fact, she was from Bethlehem. And she, her story begins in Bethlehem with her husband, Elimelech, and her two sons. Well, in Israelite culture, if you remember, the Israelite culture revolved around the family. And the family was built and sustained by its patriarch, which would be the father and the son sons in the family. So what that means is that while Naomi's three male family members are living, Naomi has access to safety and security and survival, and she has identity in in her family. But Naomi's safety net disintegrates really quickly. Because what happened is there's a famine in the land of Bethlehem and Naomi's husband, Elimelech, decides out of fear. And what, remember what his name means? Ironically, what his name means? God is my king. That's what Elimelech's name means. And ironically, instead of living in faith that God would sustain them. Yeah, you might be hungry today, but God is going to sustain you. Instead of living in faith that God is his king, he decided to take matters in his own hands and move his family into a foreign land, actually a land that the Israelites were not to be living in because there was such great sin there, horrendous sin there. They were a people of, they, they were an entire race of people that were, that were formed from incest, years and years of ancestral relationships, and they just had no moral compass whatsoever. They had no knowledge of God's laws. In fact, they worshiped false gods that they just created and made up because everybody wants to worship. They just don't always know the true God. And they didn't know the true God. And so they just, that's, and this is where Elimelech moved this family. So they moved there and then we find out, and it's for reasons that we don't know. We're not given any reasons, but Elimelech dies. And then shortly after that, his two sons, so Naomi's two sons, they get sick and they die as well. And that leaves Naomi, and this actually, I skipped one big major part, and that is his two sons actually met Moabite women and they got married. And those two ladies' names were Orpah, and Ruth, right? And so the two sons get sick as well, and they die. Now you got Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, and they have no patriarch to carry out their family. So Naomi's living there with her daughters-in-law and in a foreign land with no heir apparent, and in our society, something like that would be tragic enough. But in ancient Israel, we got to understand just how tragic this really is. It had severely harsh 
cultural implications. And as I mentioned earlier, the Israelite family, the life of the Israelite family line was sustained by the patriarch, that relationship of, of husband and then the sons and then the, 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 the wife and the, and, the, and the ladies in the family would always be taken care of as long as there was somebody there to carry out the family name and they were gone. And so Naomi's only chance, her last chance to preserve her life would be to remarry into another family. But you had these issues of, well, she's got two daughters-in-law now. They're not even living in, in, in Bethlehem where her, all the people that she knows are from. In Bethlehem, there's a famine and she's old. <laughs> there's another problem. And so going back to Bethlehem is a really unrealistic option for her. And so that's our first character, okay, Naomi. And we're gonna call Naomi in this moment hopeless because that's how she feels. She's angry at God. She feels hopeless. And so she, and she's grieving the loss of her, of her, of her husband and her sons. And she's exiled to another land. That's Naomi. Okay. So our second character, our second main character is Ruth. And Ruth is a foreigner who is from Moab. She is a wife of one of Naomi's sons. So now she's Naomi's daughter-in-law and she, becomes, she enters this picture as this foreigner who's been brought into the family through marriage. But now she's a widowed uh, a woman and she's really uncertain about her future. What's gonna happen to her? As a young woman and as a Moabite, Ruth has every right to actually leave her grieving mother-in-law I don't, you know, basically not have to worry about taking care of her because there was no law that said she had to take care of her. She could leave her and return back to her own family in Moab and remarry somebody else. And then her life would just be okay because she would have somebody else to marry. And I don't know how the Moabites lived. They maybe had different traditions, but that's what she could have done. But she chose not to do that. There's something inside of Ruth that protests against the cultural norm. You know, it's, it's like, I know this is what the, you know, the Israelite culture says, I know this is what it says, that I don't really belong and I don't really want to go back there. So I'm going to do something different. I'm going to go back with you. This is a defining moment in Ruth's life and actually in the entire story of Ruth where Ruth decides to cling to Naomi and more importantly, to cling to the God of Israel, to cling to Yahweh deciding to leave behind her old life in Moab, the worship of false gods and move with Naomi to a new nation, to a new place, to put her trust in the worship of God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And so Ruth could have easily just kissed Naomi goodbye and said goodbye and made a new life for herself. But instead, she pledged to return with Naomi to go back to Bethlehem. So this is Ruth. That's our second main character. Ruth, we call her an outsider. She is a foreigner but we'll also call her a new convert. She's a new believer because in going back with Naomi to Bethlehem, she is saying, I'm putting my trust in God. I'm putting my trust in Yahweh. So Ruth, even though she's an outsider and doesn't belong with the Israelites, she's a new convert and they welcome her in. So before we meet the last two characters, we need to follow the plot a little bit here. Okay, and so we're gonna go through that plot just a little bit. So Ruth and Naomi, they returned back to Bethlehem and searched for food because they had learned that the famine had been lifted and that people were able to actually grow food again. It started raining again. And so they're hoping to rebuild their lives back in Bethlehem. And 
something that was happening at the time, and I don't remember if I touched on this very much or not. I think April did a little bit last week. But they happened to come back to Bethlehem during the time of the barley harvest. And this was a time, the, the har- basically this harvest represented a time when landowners would harvest their crops and they would just do it once. So they would, they would harvest their crops and they would do it once, but they would leave behind whatever was left over. And this was kind of the main thrust of, of how Ruth and Boaz met and, what, and some of Boaz's goodness for Ruth. This was a practice that was ordained by the law, the, the original law of Moses. And it sort of acted as a safety net for the poor. It gave the poor an opportunity, a safety net for the widowed people like Naomi and Ruth. And they, they had no, they, you know, the immigrant like Ruth. And so these were down and out people. And that what they could do is they could go through the fields basically and just take the leftovers for themselves and that's what that's how they would be supplied with food and they would be able to keep on living until they got redemption and what redemption was was basically being able to build a new life and a new family with a new husband and and, and children and all and so Ruth this poor widowed immigrant was the perfect candidate for going out into a field and do, doing this gleaning. We talked about this gleaning, which is what, that's what that is. And so Ruth goes to the fields to glean, and this is where we meet our third character, because she goes to the field of Boaz, and Boaz just happens to show up when Ruth is out there. Now, Boaz was a wealthy, well-respected man of Bethlehem who owned a large field, and he owned the field that Ruth was working in, And so it just happens that Boaz was also a distant relative, so he could be a patriarch for Naomi. He was a distant relative of Naomi's. So because Boaz was Naomi's relative, that he was... That means he was also in a position to redeem her. In other words, it sort of means... It's sort of like basically redeeming is is sort of like buying back Naomi's life. Giving, you know, giving Naomi a new life. He could, he could do that. So in effect, Boaz is the one character who could rescue Naomi and Ruth from their despair. That's who Boaz is. And so through a series of events that we saw last week in Ruth uh, 3, Boaz is, is asked by Ruth. So Ruth proposes to Boaz in the Old Testament. Yes, it happened. Boaz is asked to redeem Ruth by Mary, to redeem both women by marrying Ruth. And as April explained last week, if Boaz married Ruth, then that means that he would be expected to purchase the land of her late husband Elimelech and then care after everyone who lived on that land. So care after all the family, care after Naomi and, and, and Ruth and then any children that they would have from that point forward. And so financially, if you think about this, financially, this would take a huge toll on a person's wealth, but Boaz was willing. Boaz was willing to do this. And so Boaz becomes a foreshadowing of our ultimate kinsman redeemer, Jesus. So even still, just when you think in chapter three and moving into chapter four, that we're heading toward a happy ending here, something else happens. And it's a small little legal issue. As it turns out, there happens to be another kinsman who is nearer on the family tree uh, to, to Naomi than Boaz is. And so this, is an, this, this would be an Israelite who, uh, and, and what happens is the, Isra- the, the Israelites required, the, the Israelite law required that the closest living relative would have the first opportunity to rescue a lost family member. And I know a lot of this is really, and April mentioned this last week, culturally, 
We just don't get any of this, okay? And, and even some of the, as you hear it explained, you might be thinking, this is really weird, right? Especially in today's culture and all the things that, we're, that we get thrown down our throats in today's culture. But it's just, it, it, it's, it is, it is weird because it's not what we're used to. But it wouldn't have been weird for them. It just was the way it was. And so this is, this is the way it was. And so there was a closer relative that, would, that had claim to be able to marry Ruth and redeem Naomi and Ruth together. And so out of respect, Boaz searches out this guy and he goes and speaks to him. And that's where we get our fourth main character. Now, granted, this, this unnamed kinsman plays a very minor role in the story, but he could play a very major role depending on his answer to Boaz's question. And so he's our fourth main character, the unnamed kinsman. He gives him a chance to redeem Ruth and Naomi. So by law, this unnamed kinsman could have and should have taken responsibility for Ruth and Naomi. But although he was the legal and lawful solution to their problem, he was unwilling. He didn't want to. And he didn't want to jeopardize his own wealth. His, he was concerned about his own inheritance. And so he relinquishes his duty to Boaz, who then is finally able to carry out the duties of being a kinsman redeemer and restore the life of Naomi and Ruth. And that is the story of Ruth. That's it. And we're not done just yet. We've got to answer this question. Why is Ruth tucked away in the Old Testament? I mean, this story rarely ever mentions God. Yahweh is mentioned twice, I believe, in the book of Ruth. So why is Ruth so famous? Like, why is this such a book that entire women's conferences are built around? We're going to study the book of Ruth, right? I mean, they're called that sometimes, or, you know, and, and it's not just a, it's not, and it's weird because it's actually, I think it's more for men than women, but, you know, we can argue that all day. But it's, it's, it's an amazing story, and it's a well-known story. What's the purpose? I mean, is it because of Ruth's impeccable character, right? Like, she's just, like, Everybody loves looking at this, this Old Testament character, I mean, who lived way, way long time ago, and it's like, man, she's, she risks a lot, doesn't she? I mean, Ruth, Ruth's got incredible character. She's like a strong woman. Is that what it is? I mean, do we want to, is, I mean, maybe. Is it, is it Boaz? Is it more about Boaz, right? And his dedication to Ruth. At, you know, is that enough to sort of romance us into reading this story and investing an entire six-week sermon series to it? Is it because Ruth became the great-grandmother of David? Is it because the very last verse in here, which makes us go, whoa. I mean, because when you read that last verse, it's like a mic drop. It says, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And we know who David is. We know who's coming through the line of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Is that it? Well, I suppose it could be all of those answers. It could be a little bit of everything, but it also could be none of those answers. It could be something completely different. And here's what I think. I think actually the story of Ruth is so much more. I think the story of Ruth is a direct foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus right before our eyes. And I want to show you, let's take, another real, let's take another really quick look at all four of these characters so that we can see Jesus. There's Naomi, who represents what? The nation of Israel. And then there's the Moabite, Ruth, who represents what? The foreigners, the Gentiles. If any of you in this room are not Jewish, you build, you're like Ruth. You're a Gentile. These two became entangled in a really unfortunate web of bad circumstances. They were hopeless. They were desperate. They were, I mean, they, that, and that is, you know, that is all caused 
by the sinful condition that everybody was living in, that we all inherit. And the whole reason why Bethlehem probably had a famine was because of the sin and the disobedience of the Israelites. The Moabite land, we know how they lived. There was just sin as a condition of humanity. And so they're desperate because of that circumstance. But there's a glimmer of hope. There's a, there's a logical solution that's been given by the law, and that is an unnamed kinsman that we meet later in the story, he might be able to save them because that's what the law set up for them to do. This is like the law of Moses. That unnamed kinsman is like the law of Moses that says, hey, you know what? He should be able to save Naomi and Ruth. And it was almost enough to save Naomi and Ruth, but in the end, it couldn't. It chose not to. But then finally, there's Boaz, the figure who is unlike, the figure of unlikely hope, I guess you can say. He risks his own livelihood to come and rescue both the Jew, Naomi, and the Gentile, Ruth. And this figure is Jesus. This figure is like Jesus. And so Ruth reminds us that the gospel was a long time coming, that God was working out his plan for salvation as far back as the time of the judges, some 1,200 or so years before Jesus ever was born in Bethlehem, ironically enough. While we were a long way off from that story in Matthew, the Father is weaving together a narrative of redemption to tell us in the story of Ruth. The book of Ruth reminds us that the salvation of Jesus belongs not just to the family of Israel, but to the entire world, to people like Ruth. And finally, I think the book of Ruth reminds us that Jesus is our ultimate kinsman redeemer, that he has paid the ultimate price to redeem us. Wherever we are, whoever you are, whatever you might live, whatever you might have done, strangers, habitual sinners, outcasts, people who shouldn't be included, Jesus is the Redeemer for you. And so what does Ruth mean to us then? What does it mean? Like, how can you walk away from here today and answer the question, what does it mean? What do we know about ourselves? There's a, there's a fifth main character that is, always shows up in the scripture, and that main character is you. Where do you see yourself in this story? What do we know about ourselves because of the book of Ruth? Read the Bible like that. Study the Bible like that. And so we'd be remiss to wrap a conclusion on this, on this, on this study without pausing for a moment and really looking internally and asking ourselves, what do we see about me? What do I see about myself in this story? Well, we know this. We know that our identities have changed. We're no longer orphaned or widowed. We're no longer separated from God. We're no longer enslaved to sin because of redemption, because we have been redeemed. We can now call ourselves family of God, the family of God because of the work of Jesus on the cross in canceling our debts, giving us our redemption. Jesus purchased our redemption. He's our kinsman redeemer. Just like Boaz, he risked his fortune of eternity in heaven and reputation as people 
spat at him and, 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 made, and, and, and called him a blasphemer to come and save the, the widow and the Gentile and the grieving Israelite, Jesus ultimately changed the entire landscape of history for us. And so God and his providence wove together the events of Ruth's life so that we could look back and see what he was planning for all mankind that he would eventually do for us. And for us specifically, we walk away from what? We walk away from, like Ruth from all of our false gods that we've given so much of our time and energy to, and we place our faith and our trust in the one true God, just like she did. And we're saved by grace, by the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who now brings us into his family that we call the church, the bride of Christ. And through faith, we're saved by grace. Although once we may have been an outsider, God has now adopted us into his people and made us part of his family. That whole story points to what God does for you and me every day, all the time. So let's, let's think about this as we close. <clears throat> if someone invited you to listen to a story about a redeemer from Bethlehem who fulfilled and exceeded the law of Moses in his acts of mercy and in his abundant provision for entering into a covenant with a bride from a Gentile nation, that story could be about Boaz or Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. That's the beauty and the brilliance of God's word. See, that's what God's word does. It shows us all throughout the Old Testament what God is doing. There is no surprise. There is no, God, there is, there is, God's plan is revealed to us. His plan about sending a Messiah is revealed to us years before he ever did. Boaz is a lot like Adam who woke up from sleep to see for the first time a woman that God had just made. And that woman would then be his wife through whom the offspring of people would bring redemption. Boaz embodies the promises of Abraham in that he is inhabiting and increasing his territory in, in buying for himself a new land. And, and, you know, in a microscopic way, he brings blessing to many, many other families, all the other families of the earth. And Boaz keeps the law of Moses in the way that he permits the poor and the, the widow and the foreigners to glean from his field, but he also goes beyond the minimum requirements of the law in the way that he eventually treats and marries Ruth. And of course, Boaz connects us to David in that the book ends by filling up its very last word in the name of that king of Israel, David. So Boaz is what you would call, and we've talked about this before, a Christological type, a Christophanes, right? That's what Boaz is like in the way that he shows us in the Old Testament, someone, actually a Christophanes is actually an appearance of Jesus. This is a Christological type. That's a whole different thing, right? My bad. Sorry. I just looked at you and want to say Christophanes because it's fun to say, right? Francisco. But he's a type pointing us. He, Boaz did something in the Old Testament just exactly like what Jesus would do. But every type in the Old Testament shows us something that Jesus is going to do, but do it better and in a much greater way because Jesus saves the world through what he's done. 
So while the narrator of Ruth ended uh, with a genealogy, that's how we finished reading it last week, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, some 1,200 years later when the Gospel of Matthew is written and Jesus comes, it begins with a genealogy. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in the opening verses of the New Testament, you see the name Boaz. If you look through, through the, that list of genealogy, you see the name Boaz. But this time, that genealogy doesn't end with David like it does in Ruth. It, it includes David in chapter 1, verse 6, but that genealogy goes all the way down from, from David and it continues to Jesus in verse 16, which is fitting because that's where the whole story of Ruth was heading. That's where the story of Ruth was pointing us to. It's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll respond with communion and singing. God, I'm grateful for the way that you show us that everything, everything points to your plan of redemption. And I pray that this morning that every person in this room would see themselves as part of that plan, that they would, in the next few moments, as, as Kenny sings us a song, that we would reflect on where we are in the story, that we would, as we get up to take communion and ponder what you're doing in our own lives, that we would know that there is forgiveness, that there is redemption, that you are inviting us to be part of your family. And if we are part of your family and we've been living in a way that doesn't reflect that, I pray that we would repent of that behavior. We, re, we, would, we would repent of, of, of that mindset and, and those goals that we may have that don't align with, with where you would want us to be. And that we would see that you have plan for us. You have work for us. And I pray that we would align ourselves to that as we go and take the bread that represents your body and the, the juice that represents your blood that gives us the opportunity to be forgiven, that purchased for us the opportunity to be in your family. We thank you so much for doing that for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.